We've been going through uh, the book of Mark over the past several weeks, and we have arrived. I know, I know that the speaker on a Sunday often has a penchant for hyperbole, but we've actually arrived at a critical point, and today's passage is the most important passage ever. It's not, but if you were to grab a Bible and to open it in the middle, you'd essentially land roughly around today's passage, which in and of itself probably doesn't really mean much, apart from the fact that actually this is a turning point in the book of Mark and in the story of Jesus and the themes with which he was speaking into in the area where he was living. So we've seen a lot of miracles And just before today's passage that I'm going to pull out from Mark 8 in the verses before, Jesus spits in this blind man's eye and he sees. So if I can get a volunteer uh, at this point, Ben had some people climbing ladders last week apparently, so uh, not really. Um, Obviously, that's a bit weird spitting in someone's eye, but back in the day, there was actually medicinal purposes with saliva and stuff. Um, You can look into that yourself. I don't have time. Uh, It's a long old book, a long old chapter, Mark 8. But, so I work in journalism, um, I, my trade is as a sub-editor or copy editor, depending on how you phrase it, and so I do a lot of reading, and different sections, I worked last night, um, I was doing a lifestyle section for a Sunday paper, and there was a story in there just talking about, um, essentially, struggles within culture, essentially, like, but the, there's this overarching theme, and lots of... Um, Psychologists would say that as a generation in an age in 2019, one of the overarching themes in our culture is anxiety. We heard it in the testimonies just now, anxiety, fear. We're an anxious generation. We're an anxious culture, whether it's individual, on an individual level, in, our, in broken relationships within family, uh, in the workplace, people trying to get ahead, people trying to get promotions, whatever. There's, in my office, there's often this, if, uh, this sort of elbows out sort of culture. Everyone's trying to get ahead. Everyone's looking out. Everyone's got their own, especially in journalism, everyone's got their own brand. Like their name is on the story and they're just looking out for number one. You get it in on a community level as well. Um, even just last week, uh, a young guy in Deptford was killed. He was stabbed. Um, so that rising gang culture and knife crime and local communities are anxious and fear, fearing for their lives, but also fearing the authorities. Can we trust them? Can I actually give information? Anxious. They're anxious. You see it on a national level. We've got a general election coming. What was that, like the third one in like four years? Uh, Brexit negotiations. We're anxious about the future of the country financially. What does that look like? What does it look like? You look at the state of the NHS. You look at all this sort of stuff. We're anxious. You look at it on a global level. You look at US-China trade negotiations. The markets literally every day are being shaped by those negotiations. Ongoing, certain leaders will say certain things that don't help. They'll just tweet something here and there. But it's up and down. Everything is quite anxious. So there's this Jewish thinker called Edwin Free, sorry, Friedman. He wrote a book, and he basically said in this book that what we can do as children of God, as the people of God, is actually go into that culture and do the opposite, bring peace. What comes with that is shalom of God. So like what comes when we are not anxious, when we are calm, is you see harmony, you see beauty in community, you see it as creation was supposed 
to be and what you see is, uh, so the word shalom, we often say peace, but actually there's more to it. It's like wellness and harmony and flourishing. You, you start to invest in other people and you see flourishing and we start caring for each other and ultimately we start to love each other. But what is true love? There's a theologian called William Vanstone. He's passed away now, but he wrote a book and in it there was a chapter that was entitled The Phenomenology of Love. All human beings, he says, even people from childhood who didn't experience and were deprived of love in their childhood, know they can discern, they can tell the difference between real love and fake love, between authentic love and not real, fake, fraud love. Um, Here's the difference, though, he says, between the two. In false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness, and your love becomes conditional. You give it only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs. And it's non-vulnerable. You hold it back so that you can cut your losses if necessary. But in true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of another because your greatest joy is that person's joy. Does that make sense? Therefore, your affection is unconditional rather than conditional. You give it regardless of whether... Your loved, your loved one is meeting your needs. It's a radically vulnerable love. You spend everything, you hold nothing back. You give it all away. Then Van Stein says, surprisingly, that our real problem, our being everyone's real problem, is that nobody can actually fully capably give that. We're not capable of giving this true love. We want it desperately. We crave it like as much as we need to breathe and to sleep. We, we, we crave this love but we're not capable of this true love how because we need to be loved like we need air like we need water obviously some people are more capable of love than others but at the core I think Van Stone is right nobody can give anyone else the kind or amount of love they're starved for and with that Mark 8 Verse 27, we've reached a crucial point, as I said. Jesus is ba- so from here on, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and basically towards his death. Um, and I want to read tw- verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they, sa- they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. When Jesus was last on earth, the average man on the street saw him as a great person, like controversial, maybe like a, prof- a prophetic type, he had prophetic power and character. Like they say, they, they're thinking maybe he's John the Baptist reincarnated, maybe again he's Elijah, um, and that's not dissimilar to today. You hear people talking about, I believe there was a Jesus. I believe there was a person called Jesus. And yeah, he had some good ideas. Like He seemed to live a good life. He was, he was for peace. He was for social justice. He was for this stuff. Like I can, I can get on board with that. But to stop there, which is obviously true, but to stop there is actually a misrepresentation of who Christ is. In one of his most famous and so often quite a piece of work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis 
says this. He gets to the heart of the identity of Jesus. Among these Jews, it's quite small, sorry. Uh, among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. What this man said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God's. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So in today's passage, Jesus goes again. He says, who do you think I am? You know, they'd spent quite a bit of time together. They'd heard what he's got to say, seen what he's been doing. They even asked a question themselves a few chapters ago when Jesus calmed the sea. Uh, they said, you know, and he's saying, who do you think I am? And it's like, is this a trick question? I sort of feature, I often have my hands in my pockets, but I'll just be stood there like, I'll, I'm the guy who puts his head down and sort of just kicks. I'm not saying anything here. But if you've spent much time around church, or if you've read even a handful of chapters from any of the Gospels, you'll know there is one man always willing to step up. We all know that kid. We all knew that kid in school. Like, it's just like, I'm sat in maths. I literally knew nothing in maths. All I knew was that pi equals 3.14159 or whatever it was. That's literally all I know. And let's face it, none of us really know what that actually means, right? So I'm sat there, teachers ask a question. It's like, and I was a bit of a wisecrack in school, which I know you'd be surprised to hear. And uh, often got picked on. Uh, by the teacher to answer the question. So it was always like, oh, it's going, oh, no, don't ask me, don't ask me. I literally have no idea what you're saying. And then, boom, the geek's hand goes up and you know, everyone's just like, oh, sigh of relief. No shame over here. And that man, that boy, is our friend, Peter. Thank you, Peter. He got the answer. And he got the answer right. He said what he said, that Jesus is the Christ. We have a winner. You are the Christ, or Christos, which is the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, anointed one. So what he's saying is that, Jesus, you are the anointed one of God. They're in Caesarea's, Caesarea Philippi. The clue's in the name. There was a Gentile city ruled by Caesarea. Um, they were well into this particular God called Pan, who was all about promiscuity and sex. They were worshipping this God. And they're all distracted by all this stuff um, that was going on. And it's there where Peter, they've been up knocking about in the Sea of Galilee, which it turns out is actually a lake, not a sea. Uh, but they're up there in, in quite, quite comfortable because that's where they were from. Everyone kind of knew who they were. To profess your faith around people that are like you is probably a lot easier than when you're down in the city where they're all worshipping other gods, where they're all, let's bring it to today in the workplace in London, in where we're all worshipping different things. We all worship, everyone is worshipping, even if they don't, they're like, oh, we all want to worship, maybe we're worshipping our work, maybe we're worshipping our paycheck, maybe we're worshipping 
our kids, um, whatever it may be, good things, but it's when they replace God and what these people were doing, they were replacing, it was a little bit more straightforward back then, you like got these actual physical Greek gods and Roman, they were all, and it was there where, where Peter, where Jesus got Peter to basically say, you are the Christ, you are Christos, not in a club. Verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. Okay, so he comes to this really public place. He's led them down this path to say, you are the Christ, to, for Peter to profess who Jesus is and to say, you are, you are who you're saying you are. And then he tells them not to say anything. Don't tell anyone. You're like, that's not in the manual. You're trying to build a movement. You're trying to build, you want to get it out there. You want to get the message out there. You want to post it on Instagram. You've got your little stories and that. You want to post it out there. You want to put the flyers. I've had a lot of flyers through the door this week from uh, different uh, political parties. You know, you want to get your message out. Most of them went in the bin. Um, get in the bin. Um, but he, I think what he's getting at is that, yes, You've got the Messiah. You've got that bit right. But you can't stop there with Jesus. He, they hadn't got the whole gospel. They'd got, yeah, you are the Messiah. We, we're getting that. But they hadn't got the whole gospel. And when I say the whole gospel, what they hadn't got was the cross. So it goes on. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man. Sorry, I've got to keep stopping. There's a lot of text here. Son of man, one of Jesus' favorite terms of phrase for himself, one of his favorite names for himself. We think that he is referring to something in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy there. And what it says in Daniel 7 is that uh, is an exalted figure representing, and I quote, the saints of the Most High. He has authority. This is from Daniel 7. He has authority, glory, and power. And all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and, and will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It's an amazing description of this coming Messiah. And, and Jesus here, is, throughout this book, is calling himself the Son of Man. So he's linking himself to that, basically. So they know that. These guys, they all know that. They know that the Son of Man, they've read Daniel 7. They know that what he's doing there so that this is what they're expecting. They're expecting this triumphant, this all-powerful figure to come and do what? And restore Israel. They're under the Roman Empire. Like, and they're expecting like a battle. Peter loved the row. You see later on, he like starts lobbing people's ears off when they come out to nick Jesus and that. He loved it. He's that guy. Right? He's that friend you can always rely on when you're in a bit of trouble. Loyal to the end. Well, not quite. Um, save that for another Sunday as it goes on. But what does this all-conquering, all-powerful Son of Man say next? What does he say? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So we've got Peter. He got it right. What does he do now? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's like, no, 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 no. Rebuking Jesus. 
The, re- the word for rebuke there is used elsewhere where Jesus starts rebuking like demons out of people and stuff. It's very strong what they're saying Peter was doing. He's having a pro go at Jesus. So he's just called him the Messiah. And now he's pulled him aside. That, yeah, what a mate. Uh, so you're hearing son of man. Like most days, it's Jesus calling himself the son of man, which refers to this all-powerful, almighty, all-conquering figure from the Old Testament. And now here he is saying he's going to die, saying he must die. He must suffer. See, Jesus isn't being selective with his Old Testament. So we've got Daniel 7 on one hand, and then what have we got? Must suffer, must die. We've got Isaiah, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. All these, well, not, I haven't got time to go over into them, but these incredible passages about how this coming Messiah is going to come, and he's going to die a brutal death, and he's going to suffer. And Jesus didn't want to be selective, but it must have been strange for them. He's going to be a suffering servant, it says. Must have been strange for these disciples to hear that. They've finally cracked it. They've discovered who Jesus is. And now he's saying he's going to be killed. It says Jesus must suffer. It says it twice there. Must suffer. Must. We've got a pink slide for no apparent reason. Why? Why? It's like there's no choice in it for him. On the one hand, he's a God of justice. Must see justice for the wrongdoings in the world. Must see justice for the sin of the world, for the broken world that turned up early in Genesis that broke what was such a beautiful picture of creation. Remember our boy William Vanstone back at the beginning with his theory on love, which was actually quite depressing. We're going back there and how we're starved of love. What he then says we need is someone to love us who doesn't need us at all. Someone who loves us radically, unconditionally, vulnerably. Someone who loves us just for our sake. If we receive this kind of love, that would so assure us of our value. It would so fill us up that maybe we could start to do what? To give that love out to someone else too. Who can give this love? There's only one person who can give this love. It's Jesus, right? You look at the Trinity, you've got the Father, Son and Spirit. They've been knowing and loving one another perfectly for all of eternity. It's like a dance that they've been doing together for all of eternity. Within himself, God has forever had all the love. He's had all the fulfillment and all the joy that he could possibly want. He has all the love within himself the whole human race lacks. And the only way we're going to get at it and get any of that is to get more is from him. An issue in my life for years was people-pleasing. I'm not very good at it. I tend to just wind people up most of the time. But at its root, it's, it's me seeking approval from others, wanting to know what other people think of me, you know, whatever it is. Um, seeing how important it is, what other people think of me, whatever I'm doing. Like after this, I'll be like, ooh. Honestly, as a speaker... The first five minutes after you sit down are like the most vulnerable five minutes of your life. It's like, just email me if you've got feedback. <laughs> you might get a sharp tongue in return. I'm very hungry as well. Um, missed breakfast. Uh, I had a chocolate from the advent calendar. Um, that was my son's. Shh. But when, um, when you come to Christ... He's got all the love to give you. And you're off the hook, essentially. 
And also others are off the hook, what you're expecting from them, this unreasonable expectation that you, you pile onto your, your spouse or your kids or your friends or your parents. Um, but tr- this true love is so freeing, this true love without neediness, with, it's, it's generative. What happens is it's the only kind of love, this true love, that actually makes more of itself as you love. So it just grows and grows and grows and grows. It's like a spiraling effect. The more you come to realize how much you're loved by Christ, the more you love Christ. And then the more you love Christ, the more you love others. It's like you are loved to love. It's not, I love and then I get loved. It's the wrong way around. That makes so much more sense. It makes so much more sense, doesn't it? Like, I'm going to do good things. I'm going to love people. I'm going to be a blessing to other people. And in turn, God is going to bless me. No, 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 it's the other way around. You are ultimately loved by him and his in the greatest act, the greatest act of him going to the cross. Go and read Isaiah 53. It's an incredible description of what was to happen to Christ. And out of that flows love for him, but for others as a community. And that is where we're able to bring shalom into our communities. That's where we're able to bring joy and flourishing when we look after each other and that's the expression of the church when the church is working properly that's what it looks like but it's all it's not all nice like there is challenge there is rebuke that needs to happen and whatever else but when it's flowing we are in this dance like the trinity we are in this dance together with god and with our community and it's quite a beautiful thing i've got like two messages maybe one message like and that is jesus and Loving others. Like, and it's the two greatest commandments. It's what he says of the two great. Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor. Sorry. I'm going to stop. Uh, if you can stand, should we stand?